Something that I've found very helpful in my study through the years uh, has been trying to put myself in the shoes of the people that I'm reading about in my Bible, both Old and New Testament. That's very helpful in some places like the book of Leviticus. You know, Leviticus, you read all of these laws and regulations and do this and do that for this sin and that sin, and your eyes just kind of start to cross and blur over a little bit, but it's helpful If you say, okay, I'm imagining that I am an Israelite, that I'm a Jew during the time of the tabernacle or the temple, what would I have to do in order to do these things? What would that look like and how would my life be impacted by that? In the New Testament, for the last several years, uh, I've gotten up on this day that people call Easter, which is probably very close to when uh, Jesus rose from the dead. And I've gotten up before... um, Well, very early in the morning, while it is still dark, and I've just listened to the world come awake and listen to the bugs and then listen to the birds and then see the first light and and imagine what it was like for those women on that first day of the week morning to go to the tomb and feel their trepidation, to feel their confusion, to feel their fear perhaps in going. And so I've done that through the years about about lots of different characters and lots of different situations uh, in thinking about studying my Bible. But I think through the years, maybe I've not always done the best job in doing that with Jesus. Yes, I want to imitate Jesus, and so I study Jesus, and I look at Jesus, and I try and do things similar to what Jesus did. But this idea of empathizing with Jesus, of putting myself in the shoes of Jesus... That's something new that I've been trying, and I've found it somewhat helpful. We know, of course, that Jesus can sympathize with us, that he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, that he empathizes with our experience because he came and lived as a man. But do we empathize with him? Do we put ourselves in his shoes? And so this morning I want to ask a question, and hopefully we'll answer it over the course of the lesson that does that very thing. What was the greatest thing that Jesus suffered on the cross? What was the worst thing that Jesus had to endure in going to the cross? Put yourself in his shoes, and I know that's difficult to do. He's perfect, we're not. He's God in the flesh, we're not. But he's a human just as we. Put yourself in his shoes and see how you would answer that question. We often talk about the physical pain of the cross. But in terms of pain, the scourging before he went to the cross was probably worse. And it's interesting to me that the New Testament doesn't emphasize the physical pain much at all. All four of the gospel accounts just say they crucified him without further explanation. And there could be other reasons for that, but it is striking that the physical pain is not emphasized. We talk a great deal about the anticipation leading up to the cross. And if you have your Bible with you, turn to Matthew chapter 26. In Matthew chapter 26, we again see these events recorded in all four gospels. There is no doubt that there is a huge emphasis in the gospel accounts on Jesus' anticipation and sorrow and dread leading up to the events of the cross. In Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, Jesus goes to the garden. 
And Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then, of course, he comes and finds his closest companions asleep, and he rebukes them. But in verse 42, again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, Your will be done. And we learn, of course, from Luke's gospel that an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen him, that that God is with him, that God loves his son, but they both know what must be done. And both of them are willing. And Luke records in chapter 22 and verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. There is this great dread, and no doubt, no doubt that was a terrible thing that Jesus suffered. But, but again, I, I put myself in his shoes and I asked the question, what was all the dread for? He says, He prays, let this cup pass from me if it is possible, but what is the cup? More to the point, what's inside the cup that he must drink? What was the worst thing about the cross? And we ask the question, rightly, was it just the the physical suffering? Was that all it was? Uh, That was horrible, no doubt. And I don't mean to minimize it when I say this, but, but crucifixion was something that had been and would be experienced by thousands of others in history. And crucifixion is but one of many horrible ways that someone might be tortured and die. To to answer that question, what's the worst thing Jesus suffered on the cross? Sometimes we talk in some vague sort of way about, about spiritual suffering. We say, well, you know... Physical suffering is something that lots of people have been through, and, and, and yes, it was bad, but it wasn't necessarily worse than the worst, so maybe it's spiritual suffering, and it's based largely on Jesus' quotation while he's on the cross from Psalm 22, where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some suggest that for one brief moment, he looked at what it meant to be spiritually dead, to be separated from the Father. And he took on the sins of the world in that moment. And it is sometimes suggested that this spiritual suffering, bearing the sins of the world, being separated from the Father, was worse than all of the physical suffering combined. But I am less and less convinced that that's what Jesus was actually saying on the cross. It makes a certain degree of logical sense, but it's pretty hard to prove that concept biblically. It's important to note, for instance, that Psalm 22, where Jesus quotes from, does not end in this kind of despair. Uh, I have no doubt that Jesus felt forsaken. He felt alone on the cross. But there's also the realization from that psalm that he quotes that even in those moments where he felt forsaken and where we feel forsaken, we are not ultimately forsaken by God after all. 
And just like with the cross, it is a seeming defeat that is revealed to be a victory by his coming resurrection. Instead of any or all of these possibilities, I think we get great insight into the greatest suffering on the cross in Hebrews chapter 12. Would you turn over there with me, please? Hebrews chapter 12. In answering Bible questions, it's always best to have Bible answers. And I think the writer of Hebrews gives us some insight into what the greatest thing, the worst thing that Jesus suffered on the cross really was. Read with me, if you would, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these folks found in Hebrews 11 and many more, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, So our faith begins with Him. Our faith is going to be realized in Him. He is all of our faith as we've been studying about last quarter. And we're looking into Jesus. We're trying to put ourselves in His shoes just like we've talked about. Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the Hebrew writer says in verse 2 that Jesus endured the cross, and then he explains this endurance of the cross by saying, despising the pain, despising the dread, despising the spiritual suffering. No, the Hebrew writer says he endured the cross, despising the shame. And that's what I want to spend a few moments thinking about this morning. Thank you so much for being here this morning. I hope these thoughts are helpful to you as we seek to be more like Christ, but even more as we seek to see His sacrifice, see His sacrifice for the greatness of what it offers, and see His resurrection for the power that it can give. It is not coincidence that since the first century, Christians have gathered to worship and partake of the Lord's Supper, as we just did a few moments ago, on the first day of the week. And that pattern was established in no small part because this is the day, the first day of the week, that Jesus rose from the dead. But it's also important for us to remember that the event that we commemorate in partaking of the Lord's Supper is not specifically the resurrection, but the crucifixion. And no doubt the resurrection has a part in this memorial feast, but we have just partaken of emblems representing his blood and his body, his sacrificial death upon the cross. And that's not to say, of course, that Jesus' death is more important than his resurrection. Certainly without Christ conquering death and the grave, obtaining the keys to Hades and death, we would have no hope. But there is much that we have to learn from his death before we can fully appreciate his resurrection. Let me say that again. There is much that we must learn from his death before we can fully appreciate his resurrection. Uh, It's kind of like grace. Uh, All this past week when I was gone preaching in Alabama, I was preaching a series on grace. and, And we think about grace and how beautiful and wonderful and powerful grace is 
But the reality is, until we see ourselves as dead in our trespasses and sins without God's grace, then we will not. And we cannot see God's grace for all of its power and all of its beauty. We're always going to see just a, a dim picture of it until we see first that we're dead in trespasses and sins. And so too with the resurrection. Without first seeing the sacrifice that conquered sin by death... We cannot and will not appreciate the life that conquered death by resurrection. I celebrate the resurrection. It is thrilling and powerful. It should fill us with hope and expectation and confidence. But on this day, when so many around the world are celebrating the resurrection of Christ, I hope to allow us this morning in our study to appreciate that resurrection more by seeing the shame of the cross more clearly. And I realize in advance, just forgive me on this, okay, that the illustrations and examples that I use this morning from my own life and the lives of others are so trivial in comparison to what Christ actually went through. But please forgive me that because I want to try and help us to feel some of the same feelings that Jesus felt to experience a kind of second-hand embarrassment that allows us to see and feel the shame of the cross. And this shame was manifested in many ways throughout the whole night and day leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. There is, of course, the shame of betrayal. Have you ever had your kid or a friend or a co-worker or even a spouse be embarrassed by you, um, to not have your back, to abandon you. I, I think the worst is, you know, when you do the wave, you know, hey, how you doing? And somebody's like, oh, I don't want to talk to that person, right? And especially if it's your own child who happens to do that. And, you know, for me, that's I'm going to wave with both hands now. Hey, do you see me? But that's, that's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? There's some shame in that, that you feel betrayed by that. It's not a fun experience, my dad and I, I have, I have a great relationship with my dad. He was the best man in my wedding, so, you know, we're very, very close. But uh, we both have strong personalities, and so there was a lot of uh, uh, anger sometimes passed back and forth between my dad and I, especially as I got older, you know, you got, you got two, well, you got a man and then somebody who wants to be a man in the house, you know, and there's some conflict with that. Uh, but I think, my dad was mad a number of times, but I think the most disappointed the most embarrassed, ashamed my dad ever was in our relationship, he was a, a school principal and superintendent, and there was one time I signed a petition against the administration for something regarding the dress code. And my dad gets this petition, and the first thing he does is he just flips looking at the names to see if my name is there, and sure enough, Reagan Allen McClenney signed the petition. And I just remember how... He wasn't even mad, just how disappointed he was, how it brought shame to him that I would betray him like that. But when we think about Jesus, obviously it is another level of betrayal. It was betrayal that was predicted. It was betrayal that was denied by those who were going to be the betrayers. You turn back there to Matthew chapter 26, where we were a moment ago. Just go up in the text a few verses to Matthew 26 and verse 31. 
After celebrating the Passover and instituting the Lord's Supper, Judas already on his way to betray Jesus, Jesus said to them in verse 31, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. I don't know about these other jokers, but that will never happen with me. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And then, you know, we always leave Peter out to dry on this, but what does the last sentence say? And so said all the disciples. They all said that, that this was not something they were going to do, but it was a, this betrayal that was denied by them that they ended up doing just a few moments later. And it was betrayal that was in the most intimate and shocking of ways. If you drop down to verse 49, when Judas comes up to him, immediately he goes up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi! And he kissed him. This this sign of intimacy. And it is that intimacy that makes the betrayal even worse. And it was a betrayal that was total, just as Jesus prophesied in verse 56 But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. It was betrayal that was often embarrassing itself, like the young man in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 14, who was following after Jesus after he's arrested. And and it says he's in like this linen cloak. It's like a bathrobe, right? And and one of the guards there grabs hold of him and he leaves it and and he runs away in the nude. He runs away naked. And it was betrayal that turned Jesus' most vocal supporter, Peter, into someone who ended up cursing and swearing that he might show that he was denying Jesus to a little servant girl. And in that moment, probably as Jesus was suspended by ropes being interrogated, when the rooster crows, Jesus and Peter look at one another. Now, I don't know about you, I've always put myself in Peter's shoes there and just think how horrible that would be. But I don't know why until recently I've never put myself in Jesus' shoes to turn and see Peter that he loves so much and to be betrayed by him. There is the shame of betrayal, but there's also, and I think it's slightly different, the shame of rejection. The people pick this guy Barabbas instead of Jesus to be released. If you go over a chapter to Matthew chapter 27, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 15, read with me beginning in verse 15. Now at the feast of the governor, it was a custom to release to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner named Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. The chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, 
which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. The other gospels say, crucify him, crucify him. You can hear the chant, can't you? Um, Have you ever not been picked for a team, or maybe worse, picked last for a team? Uh, When I first moved to Florida, there was a good friend of mine. Um, We we both played basketball, uh, and we would go to the University of South Florida. There were some outdoor courts out there. Uh, and we would go, and uh, we were the only two white guys on the courts. And so the first few times that we went, that meant that you were picked pretty low. But the difference was the guy that I would go with, he was about 6'5", uh, and, and really big. And I'm, you know, I'm me. I'm six foot. Uh, and, and I remember the first time we went. Uh, it was the first time in my basketball life. Now, I'd been picked last for other things. But the first time in my basketball life that I'd been picked last and I was irate. I mean, I almost got into a couple of fights with a couple of guys because I was playing defense so hard in these pickup basketball games. You're not supposed to play defense. I wanted to prove, I wanted to prove that they made a mistake in not picking me. Oh, I think we've all probably had an experience like that, right? Can I hear your head rattle this way? Yeah. yeah. It's not a great feeling when somebody chooses somebody else, but especially especially when you know that you're way better than the other person that they picked. What a choice. What a choice is given to these people who had been waiting on their Messiah for 2,000 years. And Pilate actually says, what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ Messiah? Are you going to pick your Messiah, Jesus the Christ, or are you going to pick this insurrectionist, murdering Barabbas? And they say, give us Barabbas. That's the one we want. There's great shame in that. It uh, reminds me of Isaiah 53 and verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. He was despised and rejected by men. And there is great shame in that. Maybe it's a small thing, but I think there is the shame of physical weakness that's found in Matthew chapter 27 as well. Uh, Again, we find this in several of the Gospels. And in verse 32, just one verse. Now, as they came out, they're on their way to the place of crucifixion. Each man is supposed to bear his own cross They found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. Have you ever thought about that? Here Jesus is laying down his life for the sins of the world to to make sacrifice. And he is unable, having gone through all of the beating and torture and lack of sleep and everything else that he's been through, he is unable to carry his own cross. This is in some ways, yes, it's torture, but in some ways it it gives somebody a last shot at dignity, that I'm doing this myself, and yet Jesus must have someone else carry the cross for him. There's shame in that. And then there is the shame of the public display. 
The idea that shame was the greatest suffering on the cross fits with the view of those who were carrying out this form of persecution, uh, execution. For the Romans, of course, using crucifixion was, was used as much about shame as it was pain. It was this public display so that all might see this one who was being executed. For the Jews, they had Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. This idea is cursed as anyone who is hung upon the tree. No doubt that was ringing in their ears would see other Jews upon a cross. And it wasn't just that it was humiliating, it was publicly humiliating. By the gate of the city, for all to see, for all to be reminded who was in charge here. The Romans intended to make an object lesson out of anyone who dared question or challenge their authority as the Roman Empire. And in this, there's a great irony, isn't there? That Jesus dying on a cross, which was meant to show the greatness of the Roman Empire, instead shows the greatness and superiority of another kingdom. Not in glory, not in majesty, not in beauty, and not in overwhelming power but in the marred, shameful form of a suffering servant. I didn't know how I was going to do in this part. You ever thought about the fact that our Savior was stripped naked? Have you thought about that? Depictions of the cross are usually like what's on the screen behind me. It's... uh, just three crosses. When we see depictions with Jesus on the cross, usually, and I think it's a good thing, there's a loincloth of some kind that's covering him, at least partially, but that was in all likelihood not, not the case when he was crucified. And we see in these depictions that usually it's just those three crosses on a hill, maybe with three figures silhouetted there on the hill, What you don't see are the dozens or even hundreds of people who would have assembled to watch this, who would have looked at Jesus while on the cross, while the crowd gathers and sneers. Uh, Have you ever had someone accidentally walk in on you? Had that dream, you know, the one where you're walking around with nothing on in front of everybody else? Have you ever had to care for someone who, because of the state of their mind, has lost their shame? Or maybe even worse, their mind is fine, but their body has betrayed them, and they haven't lost their shame, but others must constantly care for them. When I was a much younger preacher, I visited someone that I, that I respected greatly, uh, who had had an accident before I arrived, shortly before I arrived, and I spent an hour cleaning him up. I I wasn't embarrassed uh, by that. I don't know why. I wasn't in the moment, but my my stomach still hurts a little bit when I think about it. It knots up about how embarrassed he was. How embarrassed he was for one person who he knew loved him and who he loved back to be seen like that. Now imagine that I had walked in and laughed and made fun of him 
That's the shame of Jesus on the cross. Jesus was stripped and put on a raised cross in a gory display, gawked at by hundreds, ridiculed by dozens. Like the physical torture, that mocking begins long before the crucifixion itself. But unlike the physical pain, the mocking is emphasized, perhaps more than anything else in the gospel accounts. The mocking is what is recorded, and recorded in great detail, recorded in all four of the gospels, giving us various details of this shame, not just of the public display, but the shame of the mocking that went with it. And it goes on all through the night, it goes on all through the day as he's being crucified. Uh, If you turn to Luke chapter 22, Luke chapter 22, we see it first with the Jewish trials. Luke chapter 22 and verse 62 After Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, Jesus is found guilty. And the men who had held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy! Who is the one who struck you? And Luke says, and many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. With Herod and his soldiers a chapter later in Luke chapter 23 in verse 11, after Jesus refused to reply to anything that Herod asked him, in verse 11 it says, Then Herod and his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. Uh, After Pilate finds him guilty, if you go back to Matthew chapter 27 in Matthew's account, In Matthew chapter 27, in verse 27, Matthew 27, 27, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison all around him, the the whole cohort. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. And then, while he's on the cross... Uh, all four Gospels give us various details. Let's just read from Matthew's Gospel, beginning in verse 39 of Matthew 27. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. That might be the worst one. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. And then finally, there is the shame of what I'll call false accusation, blasphemy, insurrection Jesus is charged with. 
But what is the charge above his head? This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Yes. Exactly. That's exactly right. The charge that was made against him is true. And he's being crucified for it. Here is the most shameful death of the time for the only one in history who had nothing to be ashamed of. And it is not the greatest, most painful, longest lasting, most torturous death that ever took place. But it is by far the most unjust. It is the most shameful. Now why did I put us through this exercise this morning. Uh, I don't feel particularly good. Do you feel particularly good? I want to set something up here by way of comparison. I believe that the shame was the worst thing about the cross, the worst thing that Jesus suffered. And if you want to see the glory of God, we need to look to the cross. Look to the self-sacrifice, the service, the suffering of Christ. That he endured the cross, despising the shame. Now that's New King James Version. That's what our pew Bibles are. That's what I normally read out of. But the better word for modern English vernacular is, is maybe the word disregarded. That he disregarded the shame. The word means to think little of something or to think nothing of something, to di dismiss something. Uh, we might say to say, well, that's no big deal. The shame is no big deal. He, he despised the shame. He dismisses the shame. All that we just talked about over the course of this lesson is, in one sense, it's nothing to Jesus. His reaction is, you know, like teenagers, right? Eh, eh, no big deal, you know, whatever. He was totally willing to go through whatever shame he went through and view it as nothing in comparison. Now, what's the definition of a sacrifice? Do you remember this? We've talked about this. What's the definition of a sacrifice? It is giving up something that you want for something that you want more. And the thing that Jesus wanted more was so much more that the sacrifice of the shame and the pain and the dread and all the other things we want to talk about it was dismissed as nothing in comparison. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to know what that other thing is. I want to know what the comparison is. Why did he do this? What made it so worth it to Jesus that he disregarded all of this shame that he had to endure in order to get it? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, talks about the joy that was set before him. That's why he endured the cross, despising the shame. And sometimes, we look at that passage and we say, oh, well, I know what it is. It's so he could go to heaven. And you know what my response to that is? Where did he come from? He came from heaven. So what was the joy that was set before him? Again, if we're going to answer Bible questions, let's go to the Bible to answer them. And I, I think a wonderful place for us to do this is 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. We're trying to answer this why question. Why was he willing to endure this shame and despise the shame? Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Now this is in a longer discussion of grace and gift-giving and us giving gifts and giving worship back to God. 
But the motivation for all of this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know, you Christians know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, He was in heaven, He was Lord of heaven and earth, He was creator of all things, He had all power and might and dominion at the right hand of God, though He was rich, yet for your sakes... He became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Think about that for just a second. How did Jesus become poor? Uh, Well, it's helpful to know the structure of Roman society in regard to, to honor and status. And You tried to show you were elite in every possible way in Roman society. That's what you were trying to do. Uh, seating at social events was by class. You could only dress in certain ways depending on your class. The guilds and societies to which you belonged reminded you of your status. At every turn, it's like, are you above me or below me? How high on the food chain are you? And in that society, being poor, we think about poor, we think about money, but in that society, being poor wasn't just about not having money, it was about being lowly and disrespected, being a servant. And who was the poorest of the poor in Roman society? It was the crucified criminal. No honor, no dignity is extended to you. It's all shame, no honor. And Jesus left the highest honor available. He was rich. To go to the lowest level possible in this society, he became poor. For what? That you, through his poverty, might become rich. Amen? It was for our benefit. The joy that was set before Christ was our salvation. His poverty took place in order to affect our redemption and our spiritual enrichment. And we see those things enumerated even here in 2 Corinthians, that we have daily renewal through Christ, that we have an eternal weight of glory in Christ, that we have an eternal home in heaven in Christ, that we have unending fellowship with Christ because of His sacrifice, that we can be made a new creation in Christ, that we have reconciliation with God through Christ, that that we are made righteous in Jesus Christ. All of these things that lead to our our spiritual rebirth and ultimately our heavenly home, they're all accomplished because he despised the shame. He did it, summarize, for us, for you, and for me. Christ sacrificed himself for us and endured the shame of the cross, and it was easy in that sense because of the good that it did for us. And if we see that shame... The glory and triumph of the resurrection becomes that much more beautiful and powerful and vindicating in comparison. And it should inspire us. It should revive us. That my God wanted me so badly that it was as nothing to come and endure what He endured 
so that I might be saved. And because of Christ's willingness to despise the shame, 1 John 2.28 says, this blows my mind. There's a great day coming when all those who love and serve Christ, who have submitted themselves to Christ, can stand before Him with confidence, John says, unashamed. In the presence of the one before whom all are naked and open, in the presence of the one who knows all things, I can stand before Him in confidence, unashamed. And if you desire that kind of confidence even this morning, won't you come to Christ in humble submission? Won't you put Christ on in baptism that you might rise to walk in newness of life? And if we can help you, come now, while together we stand and while we sing. Have you all-